Joining us in our studio right now in New York City for whatever time it takes, we have a whole hour, is Francis for Moore LaPay. And you can watch this by going to progressiveradionetwork.com or garyandall.com. Nice to have you with us. Thank you so much, Gary. I'm going to just ask you a few questions. So please take all the time you need. I Thank will not you. interrupt you. What a blessing. <laughs> no, no little news bites here. Let's just take a look, for example, at um, our health care system. On the one side, we're told we have the best health care system in the world. Every time you turn, both Democrats and Republicans are saying this. And yet, I did a study that was published that showed that the number one cause of death and injury in the United States is medicine, ahead of heart disease, stroke, and cancer. Not a single meeting anywhere to say, hey, we've got a problem, let's correct it. Mm -hmm. I certainly acknowledge when medicine works, like in emergency medicine, and it's exemplary and saves lives, yes. But chronic care doesn't. What, what has allowed us to get to a place we're not willing to be honest about the problem and hence we cannot possibly solve it with the solutions we're looking at? Because the solutions we're looking at are the solutions that come from special interest groups. Exactly. So I'd like for you to address that. That's the first one. The second one is that it's not just institutions that have betrayed us, but many individuals have betrayed their values. You and I are both baby boomers. I, can, I cannot tell you how many times I stop and think of the value of how we were the last generation to grow up in a nation that you could leave your doors open. You didn't have to worry about a drug addict. or We had a simpler way of life. We had a less complicated life. Yet, in many respects, we had a profoundly more enjoyable way of life, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. especially kids. They actually had a mm-hmm. chance to be a kid. Mm-hmm. Today, there's no chance. I outside on my bicycle, and after dark, I was still skidding around. <laughs> and today, you wouldn't have a bike outside. Right. You would never be out, and, and you'd be carried to and from your car. Talk about what it was like when you were growing up, the lessons you learned. And because you have a daughter, and you have grandchildren. And son. And son, and your, and your daughter is bringing out a brand-new book on Diet for a Hot Planet, mm-hmm. which we're all going to look forward to. What that means to this new generation that seems needing, desperately needing, a new moral compass. They've had, an, they've had an obsession, not their fault, but their parents, with objectifying everything in life. Did you get an A? Did you win in the soccer game? We're getting you into Harvard. We couldn't, well, yell, okay. Not yell, well, maybe Princeton, no. My God, we can't have you go to a state school. How would that make us look? The object- objectification of all values commodifying it, where everything is only valued based upon its commercial value, and take that a step further into the culture of Wall Street, the culture of Washington, and then the large picture globalization, which has been the moniker above Democrats and Republicans for the last 40 years. This is where we need to go. A one world government, one currency, the United States in the lead, the bankers are the smart ones, the industrialists are the smart ones, the Bill Gates <laughs> are the smart ones, we're not, we're all idiots, and let us guide you to this utopia. And then globalization and what it meant throughout the world. That's where we'll start. Well, all right. Well, I begin, uh, I, let me just say, for the last 40 years, I've been trying to peel away the layers of the onion to keep with our food metaphor today, to ask why, 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 why? Why would this bright species, supposedly the most intelligent, have ended up creating a world 
that we as individuals would never choose. How do I get my head around that? And in my new little book, Getting a Grip, you open it and there is a graphic, a spiral, and I call it the spiral of powerlessness. This is my most simple way of stating where I am. I hope I keep learning, but where I am right now about my answer to the question, why are we creating as societies a world that we abhor, that we as individuals really would never choose? And at the center of that spiral that takes us down into powerlessness, so we feel that we are, you know, without a say, this is just happening to us, at the center of it is the premise of lack, that there's not enough. There's not enough goodness in us, and there's not enough of things in the world we need, whether it be, you know, uh, energy or food or parking places. There's just not enough. So if we accept this premise of lack, of scarcity, is our fundamental starting point. And this began to dawn on me when I was 26. If we start there, then we believe that we have to be in this competitive scramble over this lack and over the scarcity to get ours. And we've already assumed that we ourselves, not only is there a lack of goods in the world, but there's a lack of goodness in us. That we're told in so many different ways, particularly through advertising and so much of major media now, that if you peel away the fluff around human character, we really can be summed up as competitive, materialistic, uh, self-centered. I think of it as kind of selfish little shoppers, you know, elbowing each other out at some giant mall. That's our sense of self. If we believe that, Gary, then of course we can't believe that we can come together and talk over and learn together about how to create the rules that bring out the better parts of us. So that premise of lack is where our powerlessness starts because this very shabby caricature of ourselves and this distortion of the reality, the idea there's not enough of things we need, we end up actually creating scarcity and we end up actually bringing out the worst in us. So I just want to continue. This is a spiral that turns around because if we believe in this very narrow, one-dimensional picture of human nature, then we don't think we can make real choices and we have to find some impersonal force, some magical force that will sort out outcomes for us because we're not capable of real democracy. So we, meaning a lot of the opinion makers in our culture, told us there was such a thing as the magic of the market. That happened in the 80s. Um, and that those were the words of Ronald Reagan. And he said that there was a magical market that we could turn over our fate to it. And sounded pretty good because if you believe that we're so limited, then you know something that will be infallible, do it for us, that sounds pretty good. The problem is we weren't told, we didn't realize, we didn't question to realize that this magical market is really driven by primarily one rule that we should have learned playing Monopoly. And that is that it's driven by highest return to those who already have wealth. And so wealth accrues to wealth accrues to wealth. Until Citigroup pointed out in 2005, we've now reached the U.S. economy in which 1% of us control as much as 90% of the rest in terms of wealth. And with that level of concentration, then that economic power translates into political power, infects the political process. So that last year, um, $3.5 billion were spent by lobbyists to influence the people we elect 
to represent us. There are over, tw over two dozen lobbyists in Washington for every person that you and I vote for to represent us. So I, I hope you can kind of see, I, in my head I can see the spiral that's spinning down. And, I see it. And, and I think of it that we, we then are in a straitjacket because we, we look around and we think, oh, I would never choose to have, do you know, do you know that today one half of American children will be on food stamps at some point in their lives? And you know what kind of quality of food, not to mention the quantity, but the quality of food that is available, how poor you have to be, and what kind of conditions you're living in. One half of our children. I, I read that almost two-thirds of public school teachers now bring some food at least once a month to their students because there's so much poverty right in the classroom that's evident to them. And yet, you know, Gary, that our economy generates almost a quarter of all the economic output in the world today. So we know that this is, this is nuts. How do we get here? And so I'm suggesting that what we've, what's been off is that we've just focused and believed in this narrow caricature of ourselves rather than accepting the fullness of who we are, that we evolved over rich, rich tribal experience over 90% of our, of our evolution was these densely knit tribes where we were engaged, very trusting each other to help in the child rearing and very dependent on one another. So we evolved deep pleasure in cooperation and in, in a sense of fairness that kept things functioning. And so we have that part in us, that empathy, the joy. You know, one of my favorite neuroscience experiments is they looked at our, our brains with the MRI and they found that when we cooperate, that actually parts of our pleasure centers are, are stimulated that are similar to when we eat chocolate, that cooperation is so pleasurable. And of course, it makes sense. That's how we became who we are as a species. And we also know that we can be incredibly cruel, brutal, under the wrong conditions. So all of my thinking now is, how do I encourage myself and others to say, okay, it's not about whether human beings are good or bad. We clearly we can be both. What we have to do, and it's, it doesn't take a PhD in anything to figure this out, is to create the rules and the conditions around us that bring out those wonderful qualities in us and to make sure that we're not creating the rules that bring out the worst. And so I'll just finish this little piece by saying that we have created exactly the condition that brings out the worst in us, and that is this extreme concentration of power because history shows us, lab experiments show us, like those infamous Stanford experiments where they took young people and you know had them guards and prisoners and they started treating each other like they did in Abu Ghraib after six days, that we know that concentrated power brings out bad things in us. So in a way, uh, all of my work now is, is through this lens of how do we shed our powerlessness by shedding this simplistic view of ourselves, accepting what's hard to accept, which is that almost all of us would do brutal things in the wrong conditions, accepting that, then we're free because we can say, okay, Let's just look together at what brings out the best in us. And that is the dispersion of power that I call living democracy. And as we were talking about your life before we, we began on air, you were living democracy. You were following your own light, your inner light, to ask the next question, ask the next, ask, ask the next question, and 
when you were confronted with the authorities who said, no, Gary, no, Gary, you said, well, let's together look at the evidence. That's what I want to do, Gary. I want to be like you. I, I want to say, let's just look at the evidence. What, what brings out the best in human beings? I appreciate your first comment. Thank you. It was very incisive. Let's take this now to the personal level of people who are watching, many of whom have been making positive choices. I, I see their emails. And let's look at the people who don't have the benefit of your input. You're the average person right now. You either are underemployed, maybe two people in the family are underemployed, you have more debt than when you can pay, and all the time you keep looking for either a Democrat or Republican to fix the mess. They in turn say, we're going to give money to the banks who will then loan it to you. They give the money to the banks, the largest single transfer of wealth in world history. Initially, it was $700 billion, then it was uh, $1.2 trillion, then it was $7.3 trillion, now it's $13.4 uh, trillion to the banks. The banks that they gave money to are still foreclosing your house. They're still double-clicking your interest rate. Uh, they're, they're taking away your car. Uh, they're charging you upwards of 1,000% compounded late fee interest. And so you're, you're stuck. You say, I don't want to be here. My American dream has become American nightmare. Yes. Would means. you put, please, take us through how we got this idea that this was the dream that we should all be living and working towards versus the reality of what we could do if we had our own independent dreams and honored our authentic selves. Mm -hmm. Well, the one thought that just popped into my mind is that we bought the idea that a middle-class society, a society of basic opportunity, happens on its own, that it's automatic, that somehow, again, back to this idea of this magical market. And when I was growing up from the mid-40s to the mid-70s, actually, that world in which I could play outside after dark and we left our house open all the time and, um, you know, going to college did not put my myself or my family into perpetual debt, even though I went to a wonderful private college. That world was being built over a period from the 40s to the 70s in which we understood that a, a middle-class society requires certain rules to keep wealth circulating. I, I use the model of the monopoly game because we know that the monopoly rules are set up so ultimately all the property ends in one hand, one person's hands, usually my brother's in my house, uh, and the game's over. So we don't want the game to be over. We want to keep life going. And so we have to set the rules uh, both at the top and the bottom in terms of keeping um, just basic anti-monopoly laws in place. So I, I'm going to go into that in a minute. But So there was a period of time that I grew up in from the from the 40s to the 70s, when we were all advancing, but the bottom 20% were doing the best. For over that period, they increased their real family income, usually on one income earner uh, at work, uh, by over 100%. And there was a great deal of security being built. There were many more people who had protection of their voices in the workplace through unions, etc. And then in the 80s, that started to unwind because 
repeat what I was saying earlier, in part because we bought this idea that a middle class society just happens on its own. And we then believed that we could also um, have a democracy with unequal voices. In other words, if there are over two dozen lobbyists in Washington for every person that I elect to represent me, that already is so completely out of balance that no wonder we have exactly the kind of financial meltdown because the rules were made to benefit people who were doing very uh, just uh, uh, irresponsible things with people's money, as, as we now can see with these the, the derivatives and the credit default swaps and all these things. They knew that this housing market was very shaky. But this, I'm sure you've heard the slogan they used, I'll be gone, you'll be gone, that they knew that they wouldn't be around when things crashed and they'd be home with their millions. So my point is that, that it is possible to make sense in general terms of how we got here. And it comes to my theme of the power of ideas that we hold about our nature. And my theme is that indeed, Human beings are fundamentally doers. We, we, we couldn't have gotten to this complex society if we were fundamentally whiners and couch potatoes, that we love to be effective and to create. And yet we bought this false idea that all we had to do really was just show up in the marketplace as, as shoppers and, and let other people do for us or to us. And so it is this collusion that we've participated in. And I'm not, I, I want to get away from plain because I think a theme of what I call living democracy, which is the opposite of what I think really what we have now, Gary, is what I would call privately held government. It is government that operates public sphere in the private interest because of the intense power of uh, private corporations in our system. So I call then the answer that is truer to our real nature. So I want to keep coming back to that because there's some really new interesting anthropology about you know how we evolved that I want to get to. That we um, can make this turn as we realize our complex human nature and no matter what else we're doing with our lives are committed to removing the power of money in public decision making. And right now in Congress, for example, there are Fair Elections Now Act, bipartisan, in both houses of Congress, that, based on a model that is working now in three states, that essentially allows people to run without being dependent on corporations so that they can actually do work for citizens. Good. Let's go to the second part of my question, and that is, the healthcare debate has been controlled, and who controls the debate controls the outcome. I, I was appalled when I saw um, John Kerry debating George Bush. I don't know if you remember the debates, where one says, well, I'll kill more. No, I'll kill more. No, and they were competing with I who's going to kill that. more. Yeah. And I'm stopping thinking, hold on a second. That's Vietnam. Right. That's General Westmoreland. That's the people... Secretary Rush and all the other people saying, you know, if we only kill enough of those, we'll win. And you're not going to win that way. Why isn't someone saying we have a different approach to the peace process? Mm -hmm. And because it wasn't allowed in, because Ralph Nader was not allowed in, mm -hmm. that debate never happened. In the next one, it was the same thing with Al Gore. Al Gore, though he was certainly uh, a charming man, and I respect what he did for the environment on this last project, 
well, let us not forget when he was in the Clinton White House, he was the one who explained why we couldn't have the Kyoto Agreement signed. He was also the one that opened up the great redwoods to be harvested and the mining uh, at the great mines around the lakes in Utah. I mean, it, they undermined most of Ralph Nader's 176 laws that he had passed protecting us in different ways from clean air and clean water, all watered down. But because it was done in the name of the democratic movement, it wasn't challenged. I remember watching in the news, uh, magazines every Friday the vice president, meaning Gore, would throw football after lunch with the heads of the environmental movement. And hmm. then you started to see in the next six months how their position softened. Hmm. Just like today. There's a wonderful article. I was going to do it I don't know if you've, you've seen this article. It's the wrong kind of green, how uh, conservation groups are bargaining away our future. It's in the nation by uh, John Hare. I will definitely read that. And yeah. it shows about how the very people who are there to protect our environment have been co-opted. Mm -hmm. And then you start looking that what if we had a real environmentalist in a position of power? What if we had a real consumer advocate? What if we had the people that really care about people, not power, not money? As you were saying, we're looking, we're looking for the money trail. We're looking for the power trail. Where does it lead us? Everybody wants on the red carpet. And those who can't get on the red carpet then become fans of those who are, instead of saying, why do we need a red carpet? And, so it, and one last thing to put into this. Uh, I just finished filming Ralph Nader for the same film that we're going to do upstairs after this interview. And I said to him, you realize that if you had become president, we wouldn't be in Iraq, we wouldn't be in Afghanistan. There'd be a completely different outcome for the Palestinian Jewish uh, issues uh, on the West Bank and Gaza and Jerusalem. We wouldn't be uh, approaching are uh, the American citizens by throwing them out of their homes. We wouldn't have had the bank uh, bailout because we wouldn't have had the crash because we would have still had Glass-Steagall and other laws in place. Why did the American public reject you and what you stood for and go for a person who was going to be just the same? Interesting. I won't tell you his answer. I'd like you to give me your answer why when we have a choice of having people in positions of power who could make a legitimate difference on behalf of all citizens, not just the rich, we routinely reject them. Well, I start with somewhat different assumptions. I think my, my answer to that in large measure is fear, um, that fear is the trump card for human beings, unfortunately. So a lot of my writing I talk about how do we get more courage. I say that basically we're good enough, folks. We just need more backbone because it is fear that keeps us from being true to our own, to our own values, our, our own common sense, really. But overall, though, I resist the frame that I, I think I heard, which is emphasizing the qualities of individuals. And I emphasize that um, myself, and I won't speak for you, but I think virtually, virtually all of us in the wrong situation where the pressure's on us. You clearly are a person who has followed your own lights. And I like to think of myself that way as well. But I also know that history shows us that very good people 
in, who would never you would think of as as you know as as an evil person, in the wrong circumstances will do the wrong thing, will really be hurtful. So what matters most to me is to focus on okay, what are the rules? What do we know about what brings out the best and what keeps the worst in check? And it seems to me that there are three conditions. I'm sure there are many, but I focused on three that. Uh, bring out the worst and reversed bring out the best. One is the concentration of power. Two is secrecy, non-transparency, like those guys who said, I'll be gone, you'll be gone. They knew nobody could watch what they were up to. We know that there was a study I saw recently that even a pair of eyes, a photograph of eyes over an honor system, you know, for a coffee at the office where you have to pay according to office system, a picture of eyes over the over the coffee setup will mean that more people will actually put in their money for their coffee. We we really do better when we know that others are watching us. And the third condition is the othering, the the blaming, the scapegoating at its worst that we saw certainly in the most extreme form in the Holocaust. But it shows up on the playground as the bully. So that's really what I want to get my well, hands around. Uh, How do we remove those conditions known to bring out the worst. And right now, our conditions are exactly those those that bring out the worst. I appreciate you've said that. I'd like you to go further in depth on how to do that, how to get away from fear, not be motivated or controlled by fear. But in this context, watch Glenn Beck, Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, uh, Laura Ingram, Ann Coulter. Watch Keith Obman. Watch how much is based upon fear yes. or blaming the other. Yes, it's all blame. It's all about blame, which then means you're galvanizing opinion towards an individual. And I've said there are things Glenn Beck says that occasionally I would agree with. You know, there are things I disagree with. And yet he doesn't, he, he doesn't see it that way. He sees that if you're a progressive, you should be, quote, eliminated. He Does actually, he actually said, used that word? Yes, he actually said that. Oh. And I'm thinking, does he realize the power that that causes when he creates fear in people of other people? Yes. And then he started That's exactly just exactly what I'm talking and about. And then last week he started showing Joe McCarthy, the anti-communist, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a hero, misunderstood hero. And now he's saying that if you're a progressive, you're a socialist, and you're a communist, and you're a radical— he lumps everything together as there's only him on one side, and the people believe, and the other. Mm -hmm. And then he says that anyone who attends any church who believes in social issues is should be thrown out of the church. So my hobby is religious studies, comparative religion. Mm -hmm. And I can show you and quote you from every major religion that the entire basis of that religion is predicated upon helping social issues by helping the people who are disempowered, the poor, etc. So then I would say, gee whiz, you're like Ann Coulter when she says um, all liberals are godless. She, you know, she wrote a best-selling book on this. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of that? Yes. And then she goes on saying liberals, and then suddenly liberals are godless, liberals are godless. But she does not debating anyone who could answer. And so I simply took uh, the writings of Christ and I presented them and I sent them over to her and I sent them over to Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly. I said, look, find that she has her views. She has right to those views. And I'm not telling anyone they shouldn't have their views. But address this. Since you're not inviting me on to debate her, 
-hmm. Ask her to read Christ's writings and not tell her that it's Christ attributed to. Every single thing that Christ wrote about was a progressive, humanistic, Mm -hmm. and frequently— Great deal of emphasis on poverty. Poverty. Over and over and over. And constantly, and too Mm -hmm. much power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And don't be motivated by fear Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. forgiveness and come from your heart and open Mm -hmm. yourself up and come from love. Mm -hmm. So the irony of it was, I said, that Ann Coulter would excommunicate Jesus because he would be godless. And no one seems to get the simplicity. I'm so glad you did this. <laughs> of this thought process. Yeah. Same way I did Glenn Beck. I sent all these quotes. I sent over 100 quotes from. I divided into uh, seven quotes from each major religion that show social issues, social justice. Mm-hmm. That's now the new, uh, you know, curse word, right? Social, yes, social, social justice. Social justice. Is, is the new and evil. don't let them reappropriate the income. I'm not telling anybody who's rich to give it back. I'm just saying, let's look at how people make their money and can they make it ethically instead of, as they make money, we lose something in the process. But all this would only be possible if people were motivated by fear. And almost every one of their broadcasts is based upon fear. So that's your forum. Well, I wrote a little book about fear because I so strongly agree with you. And I think the publisher was concerned that people were too afraid to buy a book with fear in the title. So the title is, <laughs> You Have the Power. And I got fear into the last word of the subtitle, Choosing Courage in a Culture of Fear. And it is really about, since I, as you know now, you know I'm the believer in the power of the ideas that we hold. And in some ways, fear also is an idea. Yes, it is a distinctive response to threat, but I also believe that it is, um, if we, here's my assumption, that we evolved in, in uh, tight-knit tribes, as I said. We evolved with a great deal of confidence that our fear response, when we would feel the flush and feel and sense that we had to either freeze or run or fight, that it was a response to you know, a, a dangerous animal about to attack us or some very real threat. And so we took those sensations very seriously. But the thing we feared most was expulsion from the tribe because we knew that that was sure death. And so there was a great deal of desire to stay within the tribe. So my sense is the greatest fear of all is that expulsion. And yet today, with the hyper-tribe, as I think of it, the hyper-tribe heading right over Victoria Falls, I mean, we are heading toward disaster on so many levels as hunger is increasing, the planet is heating, and species are dying, and our children are depressed, etc that uh, it's still very hard to break from the pack. So, because it brings up fear, and we believe, and here's where the thought comes in, we believe that our responses to fear are simply hardwired, that we have no choice. I believe we have choice, and I believe that there is tremendous evidence we have choice. And so my reframe is to realize, and this began with a beautiful man I met in Kenya. My daughter and I traveled to Kenya to write a book together. And we met a man who told us the story of Reverend Timothy Ninjoya, who had been attacked for preaching, attacked by the dictator in Kenya at that time for preaching from his pulpit, something that the dictator thought was threatening to him. And he had sent his henchmen to kill Reverend Ninjoya. And while these attackers were were cutting him up, 
and he thought he was dying on the floor. He started giving away his gifts to them. And as he's telling the story, Gary, I interrupt and I say, no, Reverend Joy, I, I have to interrupt you because fear is instinct. And how could you be threatened, be attacked, almost dying, and you have the, the heart to give away your gifts, your, your favorite Bible? That, that I, I, you know, my heart was just pounding with kind of shock and disbelief. And he paused and he said, no, you don't understand. Fear is, you know, it's not out there. It's in here. We can, we can remake it. We can redo it. It's just information. It's just energy. And we can take that energy and transform it into courage. We can do that. And my daughter and I lay in our, and so anyway, what happened to this Reverend and Joya then, these attackers saw what the quality of the human being who they were about to kill, and they said, oh, we were wrong about you. You're really a good man. And they took him to the hospital, and they saved his life. But his capacity to transform the energy of fear into the energy of love. And that night, my daughter and I lay awake, and that was an absolute turn po- turning point in my life. Mm-hmm. Because soon after that, I was going through a great deal of fear myself, and I thought, oh, you mean I don't have to just sit in my room and quake and, and cry. I can actually just, hmm, that's energy. I'm going to use that and get out into the world. So I think this idea that, that uh, we have to respond a certain way when we feel that threat of expulsion and we feel like we have to stay in the group, whether it's the Glenn Beck group that's pointing the fingers outside because that gives us some security because we know who the enemy is, um, that we can resist and realize that really the threat, the only thing we have to worry about is our own powerlessness and our vulnerability to those messages that divide us among each other. And that we can really trust now that almost all of us, uh, almost all human beings basically have this hardwired need for cooperation, for basic fairness, if the rules are set so that we can count on those things manifesting in us and really, really resist the name-calling and the othering, you know, the blaming. And and I have to watch myself all the time as well. It's so easy to fall into it. I appreciate that answer. Thank you. It was extremely uh, touching. Yes, it's it's, it's right at the center. That would have been, for a lot of people, that would have been cathartic. It was. It was was life-changing. And I, um, I think this idea that we have to be better people to have the world we want, uh, I think the idea of focusing on how do we become more courageous people, mm-hmm. how do we really resist the group pressure on us that is violating what we know to be true in our hearts. Recently there was a bill in New York State, and it was a mandatory health bill that anyone who is a health care provider in New York State, which is a lot of people, all the hospitals and everyone working in them, uh, would have to have a mandatory H1N1 and a flu shot, two shots, twice, four shots, even if you're pregnant. And uh, so when I heard about it, a, a group of courageous people in this audience, including some nurses, contacted me and says, we should do a demonstration. And so along with about 12 people, we went to Albany, 12 speakers from around the country, a Dr. Eisenstein, I don't know if you know him out of Chicago, wonderful holistic yeah. obstetrician, pediatrician. He's been around a long time. Yeah. But he's a strong social activist also. He's also a lawyer. Um, 
we all got up to Albany, and there were 1,500 of us. Wow. <laughs> and what was interesting, there was just one guy with a poster that was highly incendiary. Uh-huh. So I went over to him, and I just asked a question. I said, I'm not telling you not to hold up your poster. You don't have a right to. I'm simply asking this. What do you think the likely outcome is if all of us are up there talking about good science? Let's look at the science, and you're demonizing them. And the news media is here. There's Fox, and there's Bloomberg, and who are they going to pay attention to? Very good. Your poster or our talk? And I said, it's your choice. It's your call. He said, well, I put that way, I understand. I said, good. I said, now how about writing a poster out? And we had someone there writing posters that helps us channel your frustration without your frustration being uh, of a personal attack nature. You can make anger a constructive tool for social change, mm-hmm. as long as you're not demonizing exactly. someone. So he did. Then, sure enough, Fox carried it nationwide, and there were about 200 people with posters sitting on the steps, and each of the posters was one empowering statement after another after another. And when the media came over, and I was interviewed by Bloomberg and all of them, it stuck to the issue, not to saying this person's a bad person, but rather, is the evidence there that the H1N1 is safe and effective? And I said, here's a 100-page report showing it is not. And then, then I got to, in to interview the top three people, the three doctors in the state, and they were just not going to move. They, they showed by their body tone, by their language. They didn't care what evidence I had. And at one point I said, why are you so afraid? I said, I'm not here to attack you. I'm here to share insights and information that you may not have. Let's look at the evidence. If the law is supposed to be based upon helping people, then why not we look at the science? They refused to. They, oh, we'll look at it. They didn't. Anyhow, I went back outside, and I had my main speech to give. And I said, how many of you are here are uh, from the democratic movements and the liberal movements? No hands went up. I mean, no hands went up. How many of you here are constitutionalists? All these hands went up. Libertarians, all these hands went up. Mm-hmm. And I started to realize that we've confused something in America. We actually have discouraged or demonized the process of legitimate protest unless it aligns perfectly with those in the position of power who are the ideologues to control how that energy is used. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As a result, for example, when was the last time there was a major demonstration of homeless people against the homeless? None. How about a demonstration for the 1.7 million Americans who lost their homes last year? None. How about for the 39 million Americans who are going to go to bed hungry today? None. The 17 million children, it was 12 million, 17 million children not getting enough food and requiring school teachers to actually feed them out of their own pocket? None. How about all the people getting their uh, cars repossessed so they can't go to work? None. How about all the uh, uh, subprime mortgages that they, were, that they were manipulated? None. How about a demonstration against the people who received $13 trillion and gave not a nickel to the American public? None. How about a demonstration against the corrupt politics? None. How about against uh, the, the, the people who are the global warming deniers and the massive public relations campaign they have going on paid for by the energy companies like Exxon? None. 
So we can't even go out and demonstrate. So guess what? I went to some Tea Party demonstrations. I interviewed hundreds of people. And I simply asked them, why are you here? What's your, what's your, what are you angry about? What do you want to see change? I couldn't disagree with any of them on what they told me. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask them whether they were Republican or not. Or I simply asked them, why are you here? And as one woman said, and this was a woman who was a school teacher, and she was 65 years of age, and she said, look, I wrote my legislator, never got an answer back. So I went to the town hall meeting when he was in town, and I had a chance to speak. And he refused to give me a direct answer. So I challenged him. And she said, now I'm perceived as a rebel-rousing, mm-hmm. you know, redneck, uh, militia, whatever it is. I-, I was marginalized. No one, she said, on the left wants to look at those of us who are protesting at town meetings. Why aren't the left at town, pro- uh, town meetings? Instead, today, just today, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the left group, not the Daily Cause, the, uh, the other one, it's attacking Dennis Kucinich for not going along with the health care bill. And Dennis Kucinich had the best health care bill I've ever seen. I have it on my website. And he is right. This is not a good bill. And yet instead of standing up and protesting on behalf of making a better bill, on behalf of getting good and, and universal health care coverage, instead they chose to attack the one person who is willing to stand up and say, hold on, don't tell me that any bill is better than no bill because once you get this bill, you'll never have another bill and we'll be living with the nightmare of this. And then he went through all the things that were wrong with it. And he is right. If something doesn't work, why can't we start all over again? Why? I'm a chef. You're a chef. You know that if you burn something, you don't just throw a lot of curry in to try to cover it. You say, okay. And, and, and now we don't want to fix anything. We're afraid to start over at any point in our life, and I think we have to start over and try to do things right and get the cooperation of people who are not coming from fear but from a more enlightened place. I, their energy, your thoughts, please. Yeah, Carrie, on this, I, 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 I disagree. I, I, I do. I, I share so much of what you're saying, and yet I sense that this is not once we have it, then that's it. I mean, I have the sense that once we have something that covers a lot more people and protects, I mean, the stories that I hear my heart just breaks, the story of people who are not able to get uh, insurance and they're cut off when they most need it. And those are, the, if the, the, I, the, the reason that I think we should proceed with this for now and continue to improve it is because many, many more people would be, that fear would be reduced in their lives. The, the numbers of deaths of people but I, I guess not for my, four, my, you're aware that for four years, not everybody will be covered, only children. You're aware of that. Let, you're aware that they'll still be discouraging people and taking away claims. See, this is a grossly flawed bill. I've read the bill. Have you read it? No. I, I've read the bill. Mm-hmm. And but, I but believe me, that we should gain. Uh, I, Dennis Kucinich had 83 people as co-supporters of his bill. Mm-hmm. So you're not starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. And I believe if we as a nation said that we want universal coverage, we want the ethics of the right kind of bill, including preventative programs, and if we put our power behind Mm -hmm, the people mm -hmm. willing to stand up and be counted, then I think we would have something wonderful, and I believe that that's doable. 
Yeah, it's what you're saying is very persuasive. Let me just ask you, uh, my sense is that if this is defeated now, that the Republic opponents to President Obama will then say, see there, he cannot achieve anything, and it will make it even easier to bring in those who are just you know, more extreme kind of anti-government and willing to go along with what the healthcare industry wants to do. And so if this fails, I see it as being used to make it even harder to have something that we want. And you, I think, see the opposite. I see, if this uh, is I not passed, then it'll be easier to... So that's where I think... But I see that the Republicans are going to use it either way. If it doesn't pass... It's because they're going to say the people said they didn't want it. And by the way, 78% of people don't want it. 78% of people want universal health care or some form of single-payer care. And so they'll use it against them. Either way, the Republicans win on this. I don't care about the Republicans winning. Remember, the very same rules that I argued, and I argued on this air, was that we should not have a Patriot Act. We should not have a Homeland Security Act. Well, now we got them, and guess what? You can't get rid of them. And these take away our personal rights. They took away habeas corpus. That's why people can be arrested. That's why your telephones are tapped. Now, you're a person that ab ad ad advocates for peace. Do you know that every, every single person in America that has been on a public forum, radio, book, or Internet who's advocated for peace is now on their watch list, terrorist watch list? So you're no better than a terrorist in the eyes of our government because no one had the courage to stand up except, gee whiz, Dennis Kucinich, and say... No to this Patriot Act. Look at it. Read it. I read the Patriot Act. Half the people signed it didn't. And the war in Iraq. I was opposed to the war in Iraq. And everything I predict about the war in Iraq has now happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, who, mm -hmm. who, which Republican or which Democrat stands up each day and says, you know, we've killed 1.5 million Iraqi mm -hmm, civilians, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. over 700,000 of whom are children. Mm -hmm, I've done mm -hmm. three films, three feature award-winning films on Iraq. Oh, and, really? I, yeah. and, and I And one, the end of the sh program, showing all the children who have died from cancer from depleted mm -hmm. uranium. Yes. And My son did a film about Iraq that brought that issue out. And not one mm -hmm. single issue to change the uh, War Powers Act, not one single way to change the, uh, the refunding. So I'm saying once this is passed, the insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the hospital in, in industry, and the 1,300 new agencies that will be created will become so entrenched that nothing will be done to change this. In fact, just the opposite. When the next election comes, you'll probably have a more even balance between Democrats and Republicans in the House and probably three or four shift in the Senate, which means that you will be at a stalemate on almost any piece of legislation. So I say the American public is smarter than we give them credit for. I say that if we show them that we can give, if we work together, the public work, the public must get engaged. I agree. And the yeah. public has got to stand up and say yes to universal coverage, yes to the power of, of progressive thoughts within the healthcare system. The doctors, there's not a single holistic doctor invited into any meeting anywhere. <laughs> you know, yes to those who've looked at the quality of advertising on television for children that are otherwise going to end up with adult diabetes as children and heart disease as children. So I'm looking at making major reforms. There's nothing that reforms anything in this. And that's why I, I hold the position I do. Mm -hmm. I fully mm -hmm. appreciate mm -hmm. your position. 
-hmm. But it's one of these things where nothing gives you a chance to start with something mm -hmm. that Dennis Kucinich has already done and that I believe the American public would vote for, but not if there's another, uh, not if there's another uh, law in place. That was mm -hmm. just my thought. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, and we look here, and we're coming up to just a minute to go, and then we're going to go and do some filming. Uh, let me mention that tonight, or I should say, it's tonight if you're on the West Coast, which we have a lot of our listeners on the West Coast, listening off KPFK, 24 years, 6 hours, every uh, Wednesday morning. I'm on from midnight to 6. But here on the East Coast, 3 a.m. to 9 a.m., 6 straight hours tomorrow morning, I'll be on KPFK. If you go to GaryNall.com or ProgressiveRadioNetwork.com, there's a link that will hook you into that. And, um, and Frances Moore LePay, she has a new book called Getting a Grip. The subtitle is Clarity, Creativity, and Courage in a World Gone Mad. Great title. Thank you so much. And as always, with all of your work, I wish you only the best. And do you have a website people can go yes, to? Yes, gettingagrip.org, gettingagrip.org, or smallplanet.org. Nice to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Gary. Francis Morlepay and my guest, Conversations with Remarkable Minds.